0: presented by AT&T connecting changes everything
2: you're listening to a hundred words or less with Ray Harkins hello there humans thank you for showing up for this podcast because it is a great one. And I am not just saying that because I am the host, but it's because of our guest. And our guest today is Emma Ruth Rundle. She is a musician from the Los Angeles area. Uh, She's recently moved up to the Pacific Northwest, but uh, just released a incredible record called Engine of Hell. And you should actually just check out all of her stuff because I personally am a very large fan of what she does. And um, yeah, we did the damn thing. We talked about independent music. We talked about her experience with it and her interesting upbringing within the context of a a music store, an actual music store, not like a guitar center, but a music store. Talk about that in a moment, but uh, hopefully you're doing all right as we head into the Thanksgiving break. Uh, I know Thanksgiving is a terrible holiday and which shouldn't be celebrated, <laughs> but at least it gives us time, you know, off work where we're able to spend time with the people that we care about, and I hope that is what you're doing, and then I also hope that uh, maybe you consider not eating meat, you know, that's kind of my whole vibe, and I just always like to put it out there, because, uh, yeah, it's, you know, the the less suffering in general is a positive thing, and if you're ever looking for uh, tips in regards to what to eat and what to do for vegan and vegetarian Thanksgivings, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me at 100 words, podcast at com. Or if it's just a matter of like, Hey man, I don't agree with you, but, uh, I really like this episode or like you should have this guest, whatever it is. I welcome it. As long as you're not like calling me names. Cause I, I don't, I don't react well to name calling. <laughs> I just go, all right, well, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, ignore that. So anyways, you can also for free for, Zero dollars whatsoever. Support this podcast by one, telling your friends about it, and two, leaving a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It makes it more visible, and the people that need to find out about it, it recommends it to them, et cetera, et cetera. It's a positive thing. So I would appreciate that if you do that. But like I said, Emma Ruth Rundle, she is on the show. Her newest record, please listen to it. It's called Engine of Hell. It is a, uh, I mean, it's not an easy listen, but at the same time, it's very, you know, Quiet, but there's just, there's so much going on and I really enjoyed it. Frankly, it's my favorite thing that she has done, uh, since her, uh, I think it was the 2016 record marked for death. I really enjoyed that one, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was cool to chop it up with her because, uh, she has done a lot of cool stuff, including a split release that she did with uh, Thou. vow and man, that is a crushing, crushing piece of music. I love it. So Here's Emma Ruth Rundle, and of course, I will talk to you after the end of the episode because then I tell you who's coming up the following week, you know? It's always a nice little tap-in at the end. So here we go. Let's talk to Emma. Making you
3: pure Just like flowers surrounding on
2: I first uh, became aware of you of the, uh, Red Sparrows um, because yeah, I mean, there was like, I was obsessed <laughs> with the band like um, early two thousands. Like, I mean, I definitely was at some of the earliest first shows and I, I mean, I'm not going to exaggerate, but probably around 20 plus times saw you play in that general Los Angeles area. Um, and I, what I noticed and tell me if you think that this is an accurate, uh, representation, but it seemed in that early 2000 era, there was a a lot of interesting music being created in that sort of like, you know, Hyder head Ipecac records, like a lot of the bands that kind of came from a lot of the, you know, punk and hardcore hybrids that they were sort of doing either in previous iterations or, um, you know, were splintering off from that. But, um, You know, as you were kind of experiencing that, did it feel like there was some sense of, uh, I guess, community or that there was like a, you know, furthering the boundaries of what uh, a typical, you know, quote unquote, rock band would sound like?
3: Um, I'm going to come with this question from, yeah, I guess. So I didn't join Red Sparrows until 2009. Right, right. Um, And... Toured. I only recorded on the last album and did the last two or three years of touring with the band before we have gone on a permanent hiatus. Pretty much, Um, we did. We were going to be playing at the Roadburn, that didn't happen. But anyway, um, so I probably wasn't performing at any of the shows that you saw. Right. Um, I I too was a fan of post rock. And I myself had gone to see Red Sparrows play a bunch as well and was a super fan. And got into the band by way of an audition that a friend of mine set up. Um, they lost a guitar player, and it's a whole story. Anyway, I auditioned and got in the band. Right. So, you know, I wasn't part of that like formative stage and the specific. Uh, intention I'm trying to think of what is it called exactly when you set out to do something in a business it's like a business plan but from a musical perspective like people typically start a band and say like let's do this kind of thing you know I wasn't there for any of those conversations I came on board when they'd already established a sound and had kind of um established themselves as being one of those I guess like a seminal post rock bands Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm trying to remember more specifically, like, what, how would you, what, what was the question? No, um, it's fine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> No, I understand. Cause I, I mean, I did know that you joined in a later iteration, but I guess, uh, you know, coming from that you, sort of witnessing the band, you know, not maybe from its inception, but their early days and then, you know, being able to join up with it, but just that notion of, it felt like there was a sort of scene and community springing up around that general music.
3: For sure. Yes, absolutely. And that was definitely, um, the stream that I got into that has taken me now to where I am. Um, definitely by way of that group of people, musicians and community, you know, um, a lot of that Hydra head stuff, their bands and people and I think some of it even connects to you know like the hardcore scene post-hardcore music if how everything's connected I mean like I first met Evan for instance when Red Sparrows was touring with Young Widows I was a huge Young Widows fan too um Isis was a huge piece obviously Red Sparrows had Cliff and at one time, Jeff, and at one time, I think even, and Mike Gallagher was playing it. There it was a big. It's a community, right? A bunch of different musicians, and there's all these crossovers. We have Helms Ali that was in, or was on. Um, mm-hmm. Originally, was on Hydrahead, Is now on Sergeant House, and Sergeant House is the record label I'm on. Actually, they just announced that they're re-releasing the Botch catalog. So you know that world is still. Just, all these musicians are still churning and cycling. You've got Ryan cook is playing in Russian circles. Um, when I saw, I grew up, so that hopefully caps off that kind of like comment on that group of people. And that yeah. I, I am affiliated with that scene. Um, which is strange. Cause I thought I had initially come in as just like an admirer and thinking back to like some of those early red Sparrow shows that I saw, you know watching an instrumental band with this huge sound um playing and then having these like really impressive visual projections going all the time as that being sort of the main visual focus of the performance rather than like highlighting the individual musicians doing their thing um was really interesting and it really blew me away and left an intense impression on me and my um early twenties.
2: Sure. Okay. No. I, yeah. That's an apologies. You can hear my dog obviously playing with her toy in the background, but, um. Uh, the, I'm good. <laughs> uh, but no, I do. I, I, I'm glad you not only, you know, uh, became a part of it and were inspired, you know, by a lot of those early relationships of going to shows and stuff like that. But it, it was interesting because I, I did feel like a lot of it was this uh, outgrowth of people who had been, you know, existing in the heavy music scene, whether it's, you know, punk hardcore, whatever you want to label it, but then feeling like they actually could expand upon that, but still have the same sort of DIY principles. And to your point, that's exactly what I think Sergeant House exists in as well, where it's like, all these people have come from varying DIY backgrounds, but still have that through line that is really important to them, regardless if their music is sonically akin to, to what they did, you know, when they were in their first bands or whatever
3: right yeah yeah it's cool it's an interesting it would be interesting to see like the family tree of bands and what it all leads back to but
2: yeah absolutely um and like you mentioned kind of putting the the spotlight squarely on you uh like you said you were born and raised in uh los angeles where i guess where in particular because obviously la people you know close their eyes and imagine the hollywood sign or whatever were you uh you know in downtown proper were you in the valley where we at
3: I was birthed in Santa Monica. Um, okay. I grew up then um, down by the 10 freeway on Robertson. And then, then my parents split up when I was like three and my dad moved to Echo Park and my mom stayed in West LA. And so I kind of split my time between the different sides of the city. Until I got a little older, I um, went. I have a kind of tumultuous teenage years story that involves going outside of Los Angeles. But I'm the only like school, the last high school I attended out of the many schools I attended was Eagle Rock High School. Mm. I didn't graduate, Um, I tested out, and I lived all around LA in my adulthood, mostly on the in Northeast LA and then went to Cal arts for a year, moved to New Zealand. I didn't, I just keep leaving LA and, and then coming back. I don't think I'm going to come back again or go back, but I grew up on both the West side and the East side.
2: Right. You Not the, in the Valley. You got the full run of the experience as far as Los Angeles was concerned.
3: Yeah. I had lots of homies in the Valley though. So
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, uh, so I, am guessing that because of, uh, you know, I mean, uh, as you're moving all over the place, uh, d- were friend groups kind of difficult to hold on to because you were jumping around to so many different schools?
3: Um, I have one group of friends from, well, they're really my sister's friends or at least they started out as my sister's friends. Um, that we are all still, there are like five women that we still meet up and, we still talk, but I don't have friendships from childhood or teen years that have really endured otherwise. Yeah, lots of moving around.
2: Um, and, be- and because of that, too, was there, because um, I know there's always that idea when you go to a new school of reinvention of like, oh, I was known as this person at this school, but now that i can you know start with a clean slate i'm going to be this sort of person did you uh you know try on different uh skins as you were going between those schools
3: no not really i mean
0: it was no
3: yeah (laughs) a super pleasant thing for me to like reflect about um to reflect on
2: sure no totally understand yeah there's i mean especially when you um are moving around so much and there is, you know, maybe lack of stability in general. Um, Yeah. That would
3: be definitely like a theme.
2: Right. Which is, I'm guessing obviously what led you to uh, music in certain respects, because there's that, I guess, built in community of being able to show up at the same place and see some of the same people from show to show.
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, And even before that, I I found I found stability and family by um, way of the music shop in Santa Monica, McCabe's, McCabe's guitar shop on Pico. Um, my mom had taken me in there when I was like eight years old after we had a big earthquake in LA and was she was real weird. Anyway, she was like, he thought that was a great, she's an interesting person. She's not real weird. She's, she's has a different way of thinking about things, but that was for her kind of a, a reason to get us in lesson music lessons. And so we went to McCabe's guitar shop in Santa Monica and both my sister and I were allowed to choose any instrument we wanted and get a few lessons. So I chose the Celtic harp. So from eight years old until I was in my, early 30s, I started going to this music store, um, and it became like a safe place for me. I could take the bus there, could go there after school uh, and hang out. You know, they didn't close till 10 o'clock at night. They had coffee. Um, I eventually just got a job there when I was uh, 19 or 20 and worked there yeah like I said until I was in my 30s early 30s and um that was like my stability that was my home that was what so much of my education what the music education I actually have came from working in that place you know we had concerts lessons All kinds of interesting people. The place has been there for over 60 years now. That was like a family and community for me. And yes, from there, the musicians I met by working there that I worked with, that is the center of all of it. Um, It was one of my coworkers who's still one of my close friends who connected me with the Red Sparrows people, actually. So everything kind of leads back to McCabe's for me.
2: That's really cool. Because I mean, I know you have mentioned that the music store in other interviews. And that is, I mean, anybody that has kind of been through Los Angeles knows of that store just because it is so unique and so long running. But it does echo, uh, you know, kind of a similar sentiment that people have with like record stores where it's like, you know, they just certain people hang around a record store for long enough. And then it's like, hey, do you want to like work here? Because like, you're spending so much time here anyways. And it (laughs) it kind of sounds like very similar effect to you.
3: Yeah, oh, I begged them to give me a job for you. (laughs) I was like, this, I, and, I mean, it was, I don't know, I still dream about it. I still dream that I'm there. I miss it a lot. Um it was such a great, wonderful time to be able to feel a place of a sense of purpose and belonging, and that really, I think that a lot of, like, troubled youths or, um, just kind of people that lack stability find that in different ways, whether, you know, some ways are unhealthy and maybe not safe, but I was super lucky that that music store kind of was there for me. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. No, that's really cool. I, it, it does. You do feel that anchor to a community. Cause I mean, you know, that's like why people follow religion or get into, you know, poker playing or whatever like the the communities right. that get built up around it and then like you said as long as you're finding something that isn't you know destructive or harmful like that really feels like it's something that can you know subsist to you for long a long period of time totally and it can, i i'm presuming that you know because like of the story that you were telling about your your mom bringing you to that store it, it sounds like the environment while you know, unstable, like we were talking about was kind of, I guess, free and creative. Um, would you use those words to describe that, uh, in regards 100%. to like,
3: yeah, there's okay. like creativity was highly encouraged in my family and both my families, like of my mom's household and my dad's household. Um, I think my mom was taking mandolin lessons from McCabe's actually. So she, she also is, um, plays the harpsichord and my dad's a pianist. My stepmom is a bass player, and my dad and my stepmom met in a band in the 80s, and um, they still sing together, you know, just I'll see them or talk to them, and they'll break into song and these harmonies with one another. it's, It's pretty endearing. So, and my stepmom's a painter as well. My mom does all kinds of creative stuff, and my dad is He's a deep, he's actually studying philosophy at the college here in Portland now. Um, So, yeah, interesting folks. Um,
2: (laughs) Well, I, I definitely sense a theme that you could explore whatever passions you may have inside your head, even though they may be, quote unquote, unconventional.
3: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Band merch is important. And the place that you buy it is important, so go to rockabilia.com and use the code one hundred words or less. That's the number one zero zero words or less, and it gives you ten percent off your order. Why is that important? For one, you're going to be stoked because you're saving money. For two, you're going to be getting a one-stop shop for all of your band merch needs, and I cannot stress that enough but I will, I will attempt to because they have so much stuff. I don't care what style of music you like. They will have merch from that particular artist or band and they will have so many things from them. I just, I honestly, (laughs) there are times where I go onto their website and I'm just like, Oh, let's see if they have this. I'm just like, geez, man, what a either, what a deep cut. Or like, if you search you know, Metallica on there, just like, just just wait. <laughs> you will, pages and pages of results. It's really, really cool stuff. So independently owned company, operates from the Midwest, ships out to you. Lickety Split, again, 100 words or less, the promo code, so that way they know that you've heard this on this particular podcast. It is a virtuous cycle and everybody wins. So thank you, Rockabillier, for continued support and buy band merch. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, from what I understand about your sort of musical instrument trajectory, you know, piano is kind of where you first started off and then uh Celtic harp or se- I know some people say Celtic. I don't know what the, uh, the official I'd say
3: Celtic. That's okay. How I say it. <laughs> the,
2: the only reason that I, I just know like that band Celtic frost where it's like a lot of people were like, Oh, who says Celtic frost? I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know. Boston Celtics. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, but um, so yeah, the Celtic harp and then guitar. Um, I'm guessing that because of those different instruments and all having different levels of, um, skill involved with them now where you're at, do you feel that has made you obviously a more well-rounded musician or do you wish that you could have kind of just had a one lane, so to speak?
3: Um, no, I don't wish for one lane. Um, I used to wish for that kind of thing when I was younger. I feel like there's, you know, I, I had, that whole yeah. jack of all trades, master of none. Um, I don't. I don't believe that. I, I, I'm not. I would not consider myself a harpist by any stretch of the imagination. That's like an instrument I played um, in passing as a child that kind of brought me to other stuff. But playing piano and guitar, I feel very comfortable on on both of those instruments, and um, would not have a problem. You know playing along to a piece of music or with other people, I feel that it's a great thing actually to, to have more than one skill or tool. I mean, I don't think that my personality type or my mental capacity or intelligence level would ever um, sort of permit me to become so proficient at any particular instrument that I would be like a world-class concert pianist. That's that was never in my future. You know, there's no amount of practicing from any age that was ever going to take me down that road. I think that ultimately instruments, the more you have, the better, because what it is at the core that I seek to do is express, um, express emotion. And I think that an instrument is just that it's an instrument. So it's nice to be able to have multiple options, Um, And it's also great to be able to have visual art as a conduit for that and movement and, and lyric and, you know, it can't all be said for me just through one thing, like through the guitar, through music alone, music alone is not enough for me. So I think it's nice to have the options and the experience and the relationships with the different instruments.
2: Yeah. Especially too, where you, would be able to have more control and autonomy to be able to create these different textures because you have that proficiency. Uh, you know, even in, like you said, if it's not a world-class, it's not like you need to have that. You're like, no, I get the job done with this.
3: Yeah. That's exactly how I look at it. It's about getting the job done.
2: Right. And it is interesting too, like you said, when you, are able to pull elements from, you know, different uh, artistic expressions and then see how they stack up against each other. Because I, you know, I'm sure every musician and band kind of goes through it where it's like, oh my gosh, we put so much effort into, you know, our music and uh, the way that it's going to sound live. We don't care about the recording process or like the layout. And then you feel like it just, it's like, oh, you you guys got to care about kind of every step in the process. Otherwise it kind of falls flat in general.
3: I have no idea how it works for other people, but (laughs) I know for me that it's very involved in every step of the process. Yeah. Um, I'm sure everyone has a different approach.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or or if it is your approach like that you realize the importance, like as you start to progress, where it's like, oh, we should care about every aspect. Got it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know that in like bands, you know, and Red Sparrows, different members had different sort of responsibilities because that it's too much for one person to do or someone happened to be more proficient at one thing you know like Andy would set up the projector it's nice to have um you know uh, there's some word for like task management (laughs) within a a band but when it's just you you know I I definitely have people helping me I have like my team and sergeant house obviously but I'm very involved in every single thing. I don't think everyone needs to be. I think there are pl- plenty of very valid artists who are like, I make music. That's what I do. I don't want to have anything to do with the artwork. Have Let's get this artist to do it. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just not, not my way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And reflecting on your education, like you said, you tested out uh, of high school. And uh, so did you you just wanted to get the thing over with as soon as possible to kind of move on to the next stage of your life or did you get okay grades and you just wanted to again finish early
3: i was not able to function in society i um had been through a lot of really strange and traumatic incidents in my teenage years i'd been living in a um a sort of reform boot camp type place uh run by a cult in a desert doing manual labor. And when I came back and tried to, like, reintegrate into regular school, I, like, wasn't able to do it. I couldn't – I was pretty messed up. I couldn't really relate to other people. I found myself kind of just, like, out of place, out of time. And, like, I mean, I tried to go back to school. It just – Didn't work. I guess now I know that I have PTSD, you know, look back on it. And so I just, I tested out of school. There wasn't any reason for me to be there and I wasn't necessarily, um, having a good time or doing not (laughs) a good time for anyone, but the school I was in, I don't know. I, I was just, I didn't, I was like, I don't, this is I'm not doing this. So. Yeah, we have the not- California Proficiency Exam, so you, I didn't have to wait till I was 18 to get a GED. I could just take the Proficiency Exam at 16, and didn't have to go anymore.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. This this is an environment. It's not for me. I'm not uh, ready for this. So let's go ahead and you know figure out what <laughs> next steps look like. I totally get that. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> it was more like I would have been ready for this, but the things that I've have done since what this was just so beyond what was age appropriate you know that i don't know
2: yeah yeah it's well yeah it's difficult when you are um yeah not only are you raised in an unstable environment like you said you know you're you're getting exposed to a lot of things that you know people your age should not be exposed to and then on top of that here's this whole thing called school which is already overwhelming for most kids that even do have some stable environment it's like that's just a, a lethal combo
3: yes i i would not you couldn't pay me to go back to that age yeah. like, there's just not a chance
2: yeah um, no i i i appreciate that <laughs> um
3: and i i have a lot to be grateful for you know like i'm super glad i have such interesting um i've had such interesting people in my life and i have a great relationship with with my parents more so now and so that's good
2: yeah absolutely yeah the um and so as you started to you know i guess quote unquote go out in the world like where was your exposure to the more you know uh, indie diy stuff like going to you know shows that are obviously different from uh, concerts like where were you um yeah where where did you get intro to that
3: oh interesting okay well growing up in la I'm, I'm trying to think about so when music started happening for me in more of like a setting where i was like playing in people's garages and like jamming with so and so down the street and like this guy in the valley whatever I'm trying to think of some of the earliest shows I saw that weren't, you know, get a ticket to go. There was a there was a punk music store called Headline Records.
2: Did oh, you know yeah, know? did oh, you yeah. know that spot? I definitely. Uh, I I think I only saw one show there, but uh, yeah, went to that location uh, a few times just a record shop.
3: Yeah, yeah, I saw a bunch of shows there. Um, that was probably when I was like 15. 16 would see shows at Headline Records, you know, all the clubs in LA that would have any shows that were underage, all ages, not underage, all ages. Right, right. Word uh, I would go to. Um, That was just one of those things uh, such a struggle being a young person who because I was really taken with music at a very young age you know like by 12 I was wanting to play guitar and wanted to be Jimi Hendrix playing guitar like um and then I loved industrial music it just I all I wanted to do was be part of music and be around music and all of the shows were just like no <laughs> you can't get in you know So, I'm trying to think back. Like, yeah, headline records, shows, and people. I was about to say, did you hit the Cobalt? Oh, wow. No. Because that (laughs) wasn't Cobalt in the the, OC?
2: No, that was the Valley. Like, that was
3: like. Oh, that was the Valley.
2: Yeah, that was deep in the Valley. I remember playing a couple of shows there. Wow. That was always like you know it was past los angeles obviously like the you know la proper and uh but oh
3: my god i've tried to play there this is bringing back some crazy memories wow okay so like yeah i definitely tried to get a show there you know when you're like young and you're trying to get shows sure wow that spot i actually lived behind a diy venue for a second in echo park that isn't there anymore it was like right on sunset okay um
2: did you hit the uh, the smell or anything like that? Oh yeah
3: oh yeah, yeah. yeah. oh yeah <laughs> oh, God wow. and like, it,
2: it, it, you know like as you were kind of going to these shows you know as a as a uh, a young woman um, were you I guess like identifying with any particular scene so to speak like you know were you like all right I'm like a, you know the the punk person or I'm like you know a hardcore kid or were you just kind of like I just I'm like soaking all of this in because I find it all interesting.
3: I would say probably the latter. Yeah. I was just kind of like, you know, if anything, I probably would have been called a goth and just kind of was around and seeing whatever music I could. Um, and my tastes are still very broad. I I never was in a particular scene, um, in that way. Sure.
2: Right. I mean, and I know like kind of, what we were previously talking about where it's like, you know, you are, uh, I, you are putting on different identities, not in a bad way. You're just like trying stuff out. Like as you're going to school where it's like, okay, maybe this year I'll be the sports person or whatever. And then, you know, using- that was not my, that was not. To be clear, I was using an example, but just the, the notion of like, uh, oh, I am, you know, I get into the casualties. So like, of course, I'm going to, you know, get Liberty Spikes and, you know, have a spike belt or whatever. But it, it sounds like you didn't fall into any of those. Uh, no, challenges.
3: no, but I was certainly always friends with that. You know, like at any school I went to, uh, the I would gravitate towards the the more eccentric groups of people. And like, for sure, the punk rock people were safe to hang out with the goth people were safe to hang out with. I mean, yeah, the truth of like the things that usually drove me towards a crew of people was like, Hey, do you have any cigarettes? (laughs) Like you want to smoke in the alley with me or something like, cool. We can be friends. Um, unfortunately that was, I I probably wouldn't have gotten along with the straight edge, hardcore kids. If you know what I mean. Um,
2: I, as a, Literal straight edge 41 year old adult. uh, I knew straight edge kids that I would definitely not have been like, oh, Emma, you should meet my friend who may knock the cigarette out of your hand and uh, do something stupid to you. So, yeah.
3: Right, right. I feel (laughs) you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I, you know, hardcore was like a thing that I didn't even really know about until I got older and got introduced to like post hardcore music through bands like young widows. I, I like didn't have a hardcore phase as a kid. Um, and it wasn't something that was like cracking around my peer group or around people that I knew or in any of the schools I went to. Um, yeah. So, I do.
2: I, yeah. I, no, it, it, I mean, it's true. Cause I, I do think that like once that hole opens up, you know, you start to go down your layers of like, okay, here's, you know, I I get, you know, Bauhaus, Begat's Cure, Begat, like, you know, each lane the person starts to travel down. There's only so far before it's like, okay, I think I've reached my limit. And yeah, if you don't care for the overly aggressive music, there's no reason to keep going like, like yeah, I'm fine with no effects. I don't need to go any deeper. Like,
3: right? well, I mean, I loved aggressive music. I mean, okay. I saw Cannibal Corpse play like six times as a teenager. Um, hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely into that. I I loved Skinny Puppy. I love that was more metal and industrial. I just didn't. I didn't know about hardcore music. I don't think we had a hardcore scene that. I was ever we there was no scene I was introduced to when I was a kid that was sure. hardcore scene. So I didn't even know about it till I got older and was in bands with people that were in hardcore bands. But um,
2: <laughs> Right. Yeah, you're like, oh what did you guys do? Oh wow right. that was a thing.
3: Yes. Yeah, so I got my education about hardcore just later in life. But um I'm trying to think of other things. Like as I got older in my twenties and kind of shifted away and more into like I don't know, indie rock stuff. There was like a scene in Echo Park. Playing at places like Pear Space, Um, and again that venue that I lived behind—I can't even remember the name of. I have have a very bad memory. Drugs are bad, kids. Drugs are bad. (laughs) Um, But there, there was a great scene uh, for DIY venues like that. I don't know what it's like anymore. Um, Yeah, the smell always threatening to close. I feel like they're still open.
2: Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I I mean, it is hard to have those transitory all ages spaces that are not, were never meant to be an actual quote unquote venue. Um, It's, you know, that there's only a certain lifespan on those. And those are the ones that you have to hold on to for as long as you can.
3: (laughs) Right. Totally.
2: Um, And so as you, you know, were working at the music store and like you said, kind of really started to become immersed in just, You know, being creative, obviously having a job, being out in the world. Did you always, I guess, like want to play in a band or was that kind of just a function of what you were surrounded by that you got thrown into these, you know, uh, interesting opportunities?
3: I wanted to play music. That's all I wanted to do. I, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a visual artist from a really young age. And then from, like I said, about age 12, I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to play music. I wanted to play heavy music. Um, So yeah, then as I got into my twenties and started actually playing in bands and started touring and doing that kind of stuff, it was all I wanted to do. I think at some point I was in like two or three different projects and working full time. I don't know how I did that. I guess that's just being young, but like driving all around LA, like downtown rehearsal um, it's actually, you know, called downtown rehearsal the rehearsal spaces down there. Um, driving there, being there at night after work and on the, and on any off day, you know, anytime I was had off of work, I was spending at shows, right. Or writing music or doing band practice with some project, you know, right. That was right. the entirety of my twenties probably. Um,
2: and did, did you necessarily, I mean, I know you cared about the music you were creating, but did, were you just kind of throwing yourself into a lot of these uh, projects being like, I'm interested in creating, um, I don't necessarily care too specifically about what style is being created, I just want to accumulate these experiences?
3: No, I think I was, um, I, I care very much about what I was saying with my music and my instrument. Um, that's always been really important to me. Like I would never be able to have a situation where it's like, Oh, I was in a band, but I wasn't aware of the politics or like, uh, you know, not that I've never been in a political band. I guess I'm trying to say like, there were some projects when I was a teenager where it was like just jamming with homies in there. Like they're starting to try to do a metal band and like, I'd be playing keys and maybe they're singing about, and I was like, I'm just here for this, you know, making the synthesizer sound like a helicopter while you're screaming. That's sure. great for me. Sure. But I think once I was in my 20s and I was like taking music seriously, had gone to art school, blah, 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 like there was no, like, sure, I'll show up and just kind of play guitar for your band. No, I, like everything was, you know, with purpose and intention and wanting to be an active um member in the community like contributing to uh music that was interesting and relevant and had to do with my feeling i mean i think when i joined red sparrows i was it was interesting for me because i had been singing and you know doing songwriting and performing um more like i do now but before Red Sparrows, and when I joined Red Sparrows, I like abandoned the singing thing to play guitar. So that was like a concession. But I really put my emotion and feeling into every guitar line I wrote and played, and and even the other parts, like the guitarist Josh, who I who left, and I replaced. All, I learned all his parts and felt very connected to it. I think like there was nothing nonchalant about it for me. I took it very seriously. In the first couple times I went to play with Red Sparrows, I was like vomiting in a cup in my car because I was so nervous. (laughs) Um, You know, I take everything really maybe too seriously.
1: at Sure. <laughs> well, I,
2: I mean, I appreciate that um, description because I do think that, <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I, I, I think that especially as you're trying to, you know, find your creative voice and you know you know sort of directionally speaking the way you want to head and you care about it so much like you know that is a meaningful thing it's not just like oh yeah i, I guess i'm just gonna like play in a band like what 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 type of music is it oh li- live music okay cool i'm into it it's like yeah. no, that's yeah that's not cool
3: i mean um, that works for some people it does
2: <laughs> yeah totally yeah you're like i'm just not gonna play in your 80s cover band it's fine it's fine <laughs> um kind of on that that same tip like you um with the uh all the different projects that you have done from you know not only playing in bands but then doing you know collaborations like obviously what you did with uh thou last year and i know that was recorded um you know even further back than when the record got released um why? Why are these collaborations uh, important to you? Is it just the this year idea of working with people whose art you respect, or is there uh, some other motive beyond that?
3: Well, the Vow collaboration is a special story. I mean, they were basically my favorite band at the time that they asked me to collaborate with them. So that was like a a real like fantasy come true you know I just was listening to thou exclusively I mean I listened to them pretty heavily for several years and then was just listening to thou um so that was important because I mean if your favorite band asks you hey do you want to do something you I mean I would have been a fool to say right. no. everything right. in my being was like you have to say no go hide under a rock and disappear as fast as you can so no one knows that you exist which is like you know what my um internal dialogue is constantly saying but then we wouldn't be having this conversation um and i got to do that it was it was wonderful it was super i learned a lot i gained a lot of friends um those people are radical wonderful so smart and real special um so that was a special collaboration, you know, um, I don't, I don't know. It's a, now we're at a point where it's like Marissa Nadler just released a record and she wrote to me, um, like six months ago or something and was like, Hey, can you play guitar on this song? And that's like, that's also very cool and very natural and we are friends and I really like her music. And I feel like we are peers. And so for me to play on her, play guitar on her song is, like, very natural. And like, the same with, like, Chelsea singing on her song. Um, but but making a collaboration the main focus of my, like, path is not a goal for me. Um, I couldn't say no to thou because it was such an important for me as an artist but um for my future trajectory i'm not like actively seeking collaborations you know i'm I'm working very hard on what it is that i'm doing alone part of the reason why i made a record just now that's like almost has no instrumentation on it it's just extremely bare um, as a Uh, reaction to all of the stuff I've been doing like touring with a band playing in bands doing collaborations this is like a, a total opposite of that um so yeah I mean I think collaborating is great and it's and it's wonderful I definitely felt so part of a community during the time of the thou collab that and that was amazing like my musical family expanded and it was a great feeling. Touring with them is so different and their whole ethos is just different. Um, sure. Yeah. It's humanizing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good way to describe that in a nutshell, humanizing.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and so I, like you mentioned with, you know, you first starting to play with uh, red sparrows and, you know, being so nervous and, and playing with them as you started to kind of experience the the touring lifestyle. Was that what you, I guess, had anticipated or was it, uh, you know, very drastically different than what you thought was going to kind of be what life on the road is like?
3: Oh yeah. Wow. Um, (laughs) I know it's a lot. (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's a good question because people, you know, I'm like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a musician. Oh, I'm like, yeah. What do you, what does that mean? I'm like, well, Typically before COVID happened, I would like tour for a job. That's how I would make my income like, wow, that's so glamorous. I'm like, it's so not glamorous. You have no idea. Um, so I think when I was young, I had a little bit of a starry eyed concept of what being in a touring band might be like or look like. And it was not that. Um and it is not that. It's it's a lot more gritty than, at least for me, in the level and way that I have toured, you know? Yeah. Um,
2: so did you, I, I guess, a, a more specific question, like, did you enjoy it as you started to become more enmeshed in it? Or was it something that you, I guess, learned how to enjoy after time?
3: I don't even know that I enjoy it. I I think that there are things about it I enjoy. I really love the community, like the aspect of getting to see friends all over the world, getting to connect with music listeners in a way that's meaningful in person. Um, Getting to, you know... Yeah, like the personal connections that you make with people on the road, whether those are people that work in the club, the promoters, the people that come to the shows, you know, um, all of that stuff. That I love. I love. But the, the element of like being in a van for a crushing amount of hours a day, day after day, month after month, I don't love that. It's not good for you. It's not good for my body. It's it's very difficult. It's mentally stressful. And then, you know, you have, you know, pouring drugs and alcohol on top of it is just like, it can get quite miserable. Um, I've removed that piece of it and hoping that down the road touring looks like a lot healthier for me. But I don't know. It's hard. You know, there's there's a social dynamic in a band that can be... Really stressful. I mean, there's a reason why we watch reality shows where it's like, Survivor, like, Big Brother, let's lock these people up together and see what happens. Well, it's like that in a band, too, you know. Um, And when you're all in a van, and you're like, you've slept for three hours, and everyone's hungover, shit gets stressful. And for that same reason, it can also be like a really bonding experience. And it can also be really funny, you know, tour jokes and the humor that happens and incidents, things that you had to be there to, to enjoy and to laugh at. Um, Touring is hard. That's my honest answer. It's brutal and it's difficult and it's very taxing. Again, I'm not the person that's showing up and just like, delivering guitar stuff. Like I'm not just like, yeah, I play guitar in a band and I can just turn on my amp and rip it up and like have a good time. I'm not a good time person. I don't think, I think like what I do is really intense and my energy is really intense. And when I come to perform, it's a very intense thing for me. And then being on the road is really stressful. So, um, it, it's, it's hard. Uh, definitely look for ways to make it better and healthier but at the end of the day it's very hard work and I don't think I understood that when I first got into it um I was just so stoked to be like you know going somewhere to play music professionally and I still am I'm still super grateful for that like the opportunity to go somewhere and play music professionally is like mind-blowing but It's hard if you're asking for the honest truth. Like I can tell you the the gratitude filled version, or just like the brutal truth version. And I kind of gave you the latter just now.
2: (laughs) No, I I appreciate that. I think anybody that's experienced the um, level of touring on that you know DIY, getting in vans and playing shows to you know twenty people for a month, and then you're also emotionally affected by your art. That is a lot, and it's yeah, like you said, it's well, you didn't say it, but it's not for the faint of heart, and like it's only through your own dedication of I want like this is what I want to be doing, and like if I wouldn't be doing this, then you know I, I might be in a negative headspace if I'm not doing this, you know. <laughs> so I, I totally get where you're coming from, and kind of on that same tip, the uh, the idea that you know you have been able to uh, you know put up music and travel as a musician artist and you know all the uh, other different adjectives that uh, can be put on, you know, people who pursue a creative passion, the business side of it. um, Has that something that, uh, or is that something that you have felt comfortable with or is it just the fact that, you know, you have surrounded yourself with people who know the business side better than you do. And so, you know, that collaboratively, you'll be able to get the job done. Um,
3: The business side of it. I have, a team of people that I like, you know, I have a booking agent that I have two, I have one in the States and one in um, Europe here. I work with Merrick at ground control and there I work with Ricky at swamp booking. Um, So it's been a while since I've had to book my own shows, you know, when I was uh, younger, I mean, up until my like age 25, I was booking my own shows and I'm very super grateful to those people, and for the business stuff with record label. I've been with Sargent House since Red Sparrows, so my entire solo career has been in the hands of Kathy Pello and Mark Jaton at Sargent House. So there's not, you know, anything we have to navigate from a business perspective. Um, Like I did a movie soundtrack. I, I did a score for a film that will be coming out next year. The director's Riley Stearns, the movie's called Duel. such a great experience. Um, but like there was some business element there that was new that needed to be navigated. You know, how does, a how does it work to be, we, you know, the director and I have a great relationship, but there's always like this, there's a contract and a business thing that needs to be sorted out. And that, that's not something I would do, you know, Sergeant house represented me in that case and took care of all of those details with the producer those, it's like, um, I'm not saying, I mean, I have people that are part of my music family team that mm-hmm. help me with that stuff. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that I don't know what's going on and I have no idea how any business works. Like I try to be, intelligent but i'm not i'm i'm not diy in that sense where i'm like negotiating that kind of stuff on my
2: own right right well there yeah there does come a point where especially if you're trusting other people to help you out it's like well yeah like this allows me to focus on the thing that i care about the most which is you know the creation of the art right yeah um the last thing I want to hit on was the uh, you, you have you know played around with a bunch of different voices, not only like within your own solo records, but then you know the collaborations that you've done. Like clearly, you sing a little bit differently on you know what you did with your split with Thou, and then what you're doing you know with your new record. Um, is that something that I guess is intentional with each project as you're going into it, where it's like, okay, I am going to do or I'm going to try to do this specific thing. And then you kind of follow where the music takes you, or is it all just based off of kind of instinct that you are walking into these experiences with?
3: I think that each project and song requires what it requires, you know, um, there's just like a technical element of the voice that in singing with thou, um, Th- Thou is a loud band, and for me to sing in any way that's going to get over the wall of amplifiers, uh, that has to be what we call the chest voice. It has to be like project uh, projecting um, with volume to hold any kind of space in that band. Uh, that's just like a technical piece of of it. Um, and why I sing that way on that record, and on the record I just am about to release, um, f- um, "Engine of Hell," I sing in falsetto quite a lot because I'm not. Com- my voice isn't competing with anything. I'm playing the piano, like and guitar, barely. Um, so the volume is very low, and and I can sing in that very fragile, quiet manner to deliver a different energy. Um, and a different state with intention, which wouldn't be possible. These are all things that I've had to learn as a musician and as a vocalist over time, you know, and like in marriages, there were some songs, I would kind of work on guitar stuff by myself in my apartment unplugged, and and I would sing in like little falsetto phrases and da 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 and then we'd get into the rehearsal room with the drums and Greg would be playing bass and I got my guitar plugged into my Marshall and I'm trying to sing that like falsetto line into a microphone and it's just there's not a chance in hell that that's going to come out and be able to be heard I mean even singing in the regular voice at full volume we still struggled to get it above the band so um that's one reason why there are different voices and they're different colors, you know, Um, the energy of Engine of Hell is very different. And it's, it would be inappropriate to sing in a forceful way over the songs, over the lyrics and of the the album, the dynamic is so different. Um, It required a different delivery. So I think that if anything, it's, it's something I can look at in my own work, and see how I've developed as an artist and actually honed my tool set to know that it's when that's appropriate and how and why that will work now. Um, whereas when I was younger and I was just like, but why Why can't I sing like this in this loud band? I, you know, right. like the Cocktoe twins, like, you know, da, 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 da. Um, yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> There's yeah there's definitely you know you you in the same way that uh, people approach different energies in rooms that they walk into where it's like oh yeah like maybe I can't be yelling in here like this is not the vibe of what this is this is calling for i need to listen exactly. to what what the art is yeah
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: Um, Well, Emma, thank you so much for hanging out. I honestly appreciate you letting me uh, randomly ping pong around your uh, musical life, but I appreciate it.
3: For sure. Thank you for all your thoughtful questions and your time.
2: That is indeed what is up. Emma Ruth Rundle, please listen to her music. I implore you and you will, uh, you'll thank me for it. Or you'll just listen to it and you won't thank me and you'll just be like, hey, cool. I, I like dipping into the new music, even though, you know, she's been releasing records for quite some time, but shout out to Emma, shout out to her publicist Bailey, who brought the idea to me. And I was like, Oh hell yeah. I love him, Ruth Rundle. So it's always a nice virtuous cycle when I can thank the people who make this show happen and make it easy for me to talk to interesting people. So thank you for that next week. This is uh, this is a really random one. But uh, random in a very good way. So, Numero Group is a rad record label. Um, Kind of started in Chicago and then has since moved out to uh, Los Angeles. But, you know, they're a record label, so they can be located anywhere. But um, Ken Shipley, he is one of the co founders of the label. And Numero Group is probably one of my favorite record labels around because of the attention to detail that they put into stuff. So, They've recently started to reissue some like really, really classic Screamo stuff, like foundational aspects of that particular music scene from, you know, Indian Summer. Um, They've done some, uh, I'm totally blanking on some of the other stuff, but regardless, really, really cool. They also traffic in a lot of like old gospel music and soul. And their mission is to bring music that has been completely either forgotten about, and lovingly document it. Oh, actually, Coding, that's another one. Um, but Coding, I know it was not. They're, they're more the slow core side of things. But regardless, Ken Shipley is on the podcast next week, and I am incredibly excited about it because, uh, you know, he, I mean, he does interviews, but not a ton of interviews, and I don't think he's done a podcast before. So anyways, that's what we got next week. Ken Shipley, stoked. And uh, have an okay holiday, okay? Just be thankful. That's ultimately all I really want anybody to experience at Thanksgiving is, you know, being thankful. So until next week, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through.